everyone, and welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence Podcast. I'm Don Shelby. My co-host today, as usual, is Joseph Robertson, founder of Geoversive and director of Citizens Climate International. He's lead strategist for Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative. Myra Jackson, who is usually with us, is off this week because she is very busy putting together the Global Freshwaters Summit. Our guest today is Tina Johnson, the director of the National Black Environmental Network and is principal of Johnson Strategy and Development Consultants. The latter works with top U.S. NGOs, international governments, foundations, and businesses. Her specialty is U.S. and international climate change policy, diplomacy, strategic development, and advocacy on issues ranging from climate justice, sustainability, economics, energy, and climate change. Welcome, Tina, to Earth Intelligence. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Tina, how do you square the circle on climate change policy and environmental justice? One, of course, is about decarbonization and the other, a more sociological quality of life and historic racial injustice issue. I don't think that it's something that you have to square because I do believe that environmental justice encompasses climate policy. Uh, When we talk about environmental justice, we're talking about where we work, live, worship, play, and the natural environment around us. And so it's about the environment as a whole, climate policy, economic policy, all of these policies interact in a way, at least they should, with how these environments can either flourish or be destroyed. So environmental justice and climate policy go hand in hand. I wanted to ask you about food. You said recently in an interview that it was the discovery that food was not readily available to people locally that kind of woke you up to the need to become an activist. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what it has to do with issues like environmental justice? For me, this idea that uh, a city uh, cannot have a supermarket is fascinating. Uh, And when I, I worked for the Tibetan government in exile in India... And uh, I could get on a daily basis bananas, grapes, um, and I was at the base of the Himalayas. Um, I go to Pennsylvania to a small city in Delaware County, and uh, I couldn't get an apple, banana, or grapes. And so it got me thinking, well, how do people actually begin to address these concerns when they don't have access to things that they actually need. And fortunately for me, or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, I was in a city called Chester, Pennsylvania, which has several issues from food insecurity to health disparities to pollution and toxic waste, refineries a half a mile from it, high rates of cancer, high rates of asthma, strokes, you name it. It's pretty much become a dumping ground. And so for me, I was at a confluence of many social issues, social justice issues, and environmental justice was a part of that, as well as economic, health, education, prison reform, all of those things. I would say I got a master class in this type of activism because I was in a community that had to deal with all of them at the same time, which is pretty much the norm for any community that is working on the front lines from any of these positions. If you're working on police reform in your community, you're probably needing to address environmental justice. I think it's right to think of environmental justice as a 
connective tissue to bring together this intersectionality of how these movements actually complement one another um, in their approaches to transform uh, systemic paradigms that are rooted in racism. I know that you know, with the last year with the Black Lives Matters movement, you know, after the horrific year we've had with police murders of of Black people across the country and other minorities, as well as the political unrest that we see, it's challenging for folks to really want to get at the root cause of this distressed, oppressed, overwhelming sense that our systems have failed. But our systems were never created in the United States to function for everyone. It is the ideal now that we have that our systems, our government, our laws will function for all. And so part of the issues when we think about climate change, if we want to look at climate change and sea level rise, most of the folks who are impacted by sea level rise in the Gulf South will look you know, along that corridor are Black or other minorities, but primarily Black or African-American people who were not permitted to buy land above the floodplain. They were only allowed to buy land in the floodplain. And so there's a system. This is, you know, post-slavery. This is not like the last 50 years. So we have a system that was created to say you will not have access to the same quality of environment as, as white people will. We'll give you the worst land. We'll make sure that it's the most difficult place to grow food, to survive in a storm. And on top of that, guess what? We're not going to insure you. We're not going to provide you with access to loans that allow you to actually renovate or fix up your properties. You, you don't get any of these other benefits. And so the system in, is in place that even when you are trying your best, you're at a disadvantage. And so now we're looking at an opportunity to really be transformative around a holistic approach to addressing this systemic framework that was established before slavery, right? Colonialism was for rich, white, educated men from England, and then, of course, other parts of Europe, not for the poor whites. <laughs> so, and then we bring in the slave trade, and then we begin to create this system again, where people are oppressed, or people are put even lower than indentured servants or poor whites. And so we've, it, it's a system that's created and has been expanded to exclude more and more people who don't fit a certain criteria of what it means to have privilege. And we're reaping what was sowed now, and we have an opportunity to uproot and replant. The idea underlying our democracy, which is that the value of each individual person should be paramount, right? It should be paramount to the whims of power. It should be paramount to the whims of wealth and privilege. That's the idea, but the history, of course, is very different. And so essentially, do you think if we're going to really live that idea, if we're going to actually have rights that are real, that are manifest, that are protected, not just privileges for some and not for others, that we actually have to build fairness into all of these environments. We, we have to essentially eradicate this unevenness somehow. I am a proponent, and every time I speak anywhere, I say that if we're really serious about transformative change, if we're really serious about transformative policy, we must lead first with equity as not just the lens, but the actual framework by which we develop, design, 
implement policies, initiatives, approaches to solving our greatest problems. Because without it, we will see, again, the same cycle that we're in now. And again, it's such a difficult conversation for many people to have because when you put it in the context of racial injustice or racism, for example, or sexism or transgenderism or any of these isms that folks can say, no, I don't want to deal with that because, you know, it takes away my freedom. That's a cop out, right? Because, but these are the, the lenses that are there. But if we were to look at it from a lens, from the, if we were to have an equity framework to say, this is our framework that we need to design policy that's rooted in equity. We cater to those with and we care very little for those without. You know that it is stacked against you. They don't want equity, quite frankly. How do you propose to change it? I have this conversation so often, even with friends and dear friends, and I ask this question, what are you willing to give up in order for there to be equity, in order for there to be justice, if you can identify that it doesn't exist? What are you willing to say you can, you are willing to, to let go of? And usually there's silence because people don't think of it that way, right? Because in order for there to be equity, you have to have, there has to, you get less of what you have, whatever that might be. And it's distributed in a way that is equitable, right? This novel idea that we're taught as kids that you should be fair, you should be just, you should take care of each other. And suddenly when you're asked to give of yourself, to give of your community for that to happen, we begin to think more in our own little space and mind of what we will lose. I was doing this uh, presentation at a university and the students were just great students like, yeah, we think every student should have access to education. And they were at a, you know, an Ivy League school and uh, underclassmen. And, and I said, OK, so how many of you are willing to give up your graduate school spot to someone who didn't have the same access or accessibility to what you had to get to this place. I said, just by a show of hands. And none of them raised their hand. They're like, I said, well, why not? Why, why, is, why are there no hands raised? Well, because I really want to, I, I, I deserve it. <laughs> I should be in that spot because, you know, I worked hard, but suddenly that idea of equity or fairness that they are rooted in really strongly when it came to them actually doing something to make it more equitable for someone else that it had not been equitable for. So your earlier point, Don, that that became a challenge. And so even in their earnest of wanting equity, when asked to give it, um, to exercise it, they were really hesitant or unwilling. So it's again, I think it's just a human uh, doing that introspection of 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 this, this of what we really want. And it's it's the process of us getting to where we say we want to be that idea, that ideal of what it is to to be, you know, one nation under God, if you want to use that phrase or to be all Americans or but to be a society, what does that look like where you don't have some people who are just one paycheck away from the streets and other people who are three houses deep and four houses deep and too much money to spend in a lifetime? You know, it raises the question, are we invested 
in each other. You know, you said this idea of the one nation or, you know, of the many one. We are connected to each other. Our experiences are not so separate that we are somehow able to live as if the world didn't have these problems, right? Would we not be a better society? Would we not all be better off if we did the things, if we took the responsibility so that everybody could thrive? Can we become a society where it's more normal for everyone to be invested in the success of others? Most people start off in a family and there are different ways in which families coexist and relate to each other and care for each other or don't care for each other. It's a practice in caring, just like it's a practice in being indifferent. And so if we want to actually have a society, a a world in which um, we are invested in each other, we practice being invested in each other. We really are intentional around the way in which we show up. Um, for one another. So if we're talking about um, policy and I work on, I don't know, hydroelectricity or something, which I don't, but if I did, and I'm in the meeting talking about policy and I'm only talking about how much this would benefit the economic stability of the community and that everyone would feel great because they would have Maybe we're going to give them some money or something um, every year because they let us put this in their communities and that's enough. But we never, and we think that's the investment. That's the, that's the investment into this community and that should be sufficient. To some, that would be a sufficient investment. But really, it's like, is, is the well-being of the community being considered in this policy that we're, that we're enacting or this infrastructure project that we're developing, how is it impacting the community around? How can we make this project actually reflect or meet the needs of the people there? How can we be intentional around how we permit and where we where we place certain um, industries? Like, that is a practice. And we have such a long history of practicing bad investment into our people and to our communities and into our systems in a way that actually breeds this type of compassion and this awareness of each other, that when we are in a room together, even if we're in a room with someone that speaks our language, that we're unable to bring in other people's ideas just because they don't meet the criteria of the people that I'm talking with means I'm not invested in the people outside of of the spaces that I'm comfortable in. So how much of an investment are we willing to make outside of ourselves, outside of our comfort zones? It's an easy answer in a sense that when you think about your own circle of friends, most of us know who we know and that's who we know. That's where we go to. And that's, that's deep of the well as we will dig into for relationships. And for many of us, our circle of friends, our community is not that big. And I think that's a real microcosm of the bigger question of how do we invest in the society, in our communities as a whole, when we have a, when we struggle to invest even beyond the, the communities that we have, which would also, if we were able to do that, would make a huge difference. 
And I think about the the issues that exist right now politically in the United States around, you know, folks who supported Donald Trump, folks who are conservatives, Republicans, the far left, I mean, the progressives, all these folks, and how there's no conversation or people say we need to talk. But really, it's like we need to see each other as more than political members or part of a party, because the parties can change. But the country we live in, our society is our society. We frame it, we develop it, we create it, we design it to meet our needs. And then we put people in places to help lead us, not the reverse. And I think that's also part of it is understanding our power and that we can actually enact and practice intentionality around engagement, around the way in which we want to invest in one another. Uh, But as long as we are pitted against each other based on gender, race, ethnicity, legal status, or age, or sexual orientation, it's really difficult for folks to invest in folks that they're afraid of or they think that aren't worth investing in because they've been told they're not. So that's another thing, right? Like changing that narrative. That narrative has to change. Uh, And we change it by putting people in positions that actually reflect the intentionality of what we say we want the world to be and not an excuse for what we say we're willing to put up with because we don't like the other person. The polls show that minorities in the United States, that the environment doesn't rank very high among those concerns in those groups uh, because they've got greater and more important things to address first, the health care, poverty, safety, jobs. How do you reach people within underrepresented communities and say the environment, however you define it, is an important issue for you? Maybe that's what the polls say, but I think it's the way in which you word word it. I mean, if you ask a parent who has a kid who has to wear a, an asthma mask who lives in a petrochemical corridor, they understand that pollution is impacting the health and well-being of their families. But those petrochemical plants are also feeding their families. If you look at the Louisiana corridor, you know, where you have petrochemicals plants, but you also have um, oil extraction, folks know that the fossil fuel extraction, any extraction of natural resources is a detriment to their health, but it also puts food on their tables. And so I think that the way many people want to talk about the climate is to say, don't you care about the climate? And people say, yeah, I, I, yeah of course I care about the climate. I, I, I care about it, but I care about my family. And its well-being, and so I do think that, and this is this is an age-old problem with I think the climate movement space, and I think this is why environmental justice is having such an important moment right now. It's because it is a holistic understanding of what it means to exist in environments that are either good for you or bad for you, and when they're good for you, it's usually because you're wealthy, white. Educate it, and if they're bad for you, it's usually because you're black, not necessarily low income, although it's low, low income, but there are a lot of middle class black people living in polluted areas who make more money than uh, poor whites. And so but they're living in these in these environments, and their daily understanding is that no matter what I do, how much money I earn. I I cannot breathe clean air. I may not be able to drink fresh water. My kids are sick. 
we have higher rates of asthma. We have higher rates of stroke. We have higher rates of cancer. If anything that COVID has helped to to show, right, is that if you are already impacted by pollution, you are going to be more likely to be sick and die from COVID because your system, your body is already so compromised that it cannot do the job of fighting off this new disease. I don't know how you then say to someone, you need to care about climate change when they're like, yeah, I care. I can care about this climate change. But if I'm caring about climate change, who's caring about the fact that particulate matter 2.5 is allowing COVID to hit you right onto my lungs? Who cares that I actually can't get out of this neighborhood because I don't earn enough money to get to a place that might be healthier or cleaner for my family? Or the permitting process that's in place allows for the industry and polluters to have more power than it does for its citizens. How do you change the systems that make it so people have to be concerned about their basic well, welfare on top of wanting them to, to care about something that for them is, is external to a reality, which is just their quality of life? So I, I think it's an un, unfair assessment of what people care about Maybe just start from the assumption that people do want clean air, clean water, safe streets, no pollution, less predisposition to disease, dietary health, all those things. Instead of asking the questions all separately so that we can somehow define what people do and don't care about. We have to understand in our society, we are not going to ever get beyond this. And so we understand in American society in particular that the, the systemic racist system, the process, the paradigms, however you want to call them, have made it so that there are people who will say, yeah, no, I don't care. I don't want these things. But then if you were to say, well, are they OK if they're in this community? Who might many people would probably say, yeah, it's OK because they're not white. <laughs> right. Like when you have like. um People on welfare, like, per, you know, more white people are on welfare than, than any other group of people. And that's a fact, right? But there are white people who believe, not all but many, that white people should have access to welfare, but nobody else should have access to welfare because they don't deserve it. So we can have these broader intentional conversations, but we also have to acknowledge and really dig deep into the systemic biases and the systemic racism that exists that says these systems can only work for one group of people or this group of people or that community of people and no one else. And I think that has to be part of that that nuance of getting to the intentionality around how we want to look at this together. I mean, it, it has to be addressed because if it's not, then we're back where we started. My personal feeling is we, we are not a fully functioning society. And there are people who excel. There are people who achieve. But any one of us who achieves in a society where so many people are living on the margins or are denied the most basic dignities, the number of people suffering extreme poverty is so great in the United States that a United Nations special rapporteur called it a humanitarian crisis, where basic human rights are being denied. And we are not a fully functioning society. We cannot call ourselves that unless we do what you're saying, unless we start to say that justice is for everyone. The, the rights and privileges that any one of us would like to have are for everyone. We are so much greater if we can actually live that. And I think we'll be a more capable, safer, more prosperous society long into the future if we figure that out. I agree.
Our guest has been Tina Johnson. Thank you very much for being with us today, Tina. And tune in for our next episode of Geoversive Earth Intelligence. And for a full archive of our podcast, you can go to earthintel.org. And for a deeper dive, go to geoversive.net. Thank you, everyone, for joining us around the world. We'll talk to you next week.